Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. And I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast, where today we're going to be talking about our favorite little land sharks, the Bolette. Yay, land sharks. Yay, land sharks. And actually, like... I, I was kind of curious as to what the history of Bolettes generally was like, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. This is one of those first edition original monsters. So I know like every episode we say we're not going to go into the history of monsters, and then we do. So <laughs> like, maybe I'll just stop doing that disclaimer, and if we feel like it, we can go into the history of whatever the monster is that we're talking about. Yeah. The story behind this one is kind of interesting. So like, as the story goes, Gary Gygax, our friend, was looking for our friend Gary. Yeah, our best friend. He was running a chainmail or whatever it was, the kind of pre-D&D war game RPG that they would play before they started developing D&D. So Gary Gygax was trolling around dime stores and like pawn shops looking for weird little figures that he could throw in to spice up his chainmail game. So he ended up finding some like what were supposedly like cheap knockoff kaiju monster figures like <laughs> Bogira and <laughs> Fothman, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So apparently among those sets, they these little knockoff kaiju monster figures ended up being the basis for a bunch of first edition monsters like owl bears and rust monsters. Uh, I, if I had to guess, I'm sure the Tarask was in part based on a knockoff Godzilla figure. Oh, probably, yeah. And, of course, Bolettes as well were based off of these cheap uh, little kaiju figures. And actually, if you have the time, dear listener, I would recommend looking up what the first edition Bolette looks like. Because you can absolutely... It's pretty damn silly. It's really cute. You can absolutely see the, like, Japanese kaiju design heritage in the first edition Bolette drawing. It has that, like, very angular with, like, almost what appear to be robot parts <laughs> yeah. shell casing to it. It's very, it's very cute. It's very silly. I recommend giving that a look. So, yes, in terms of what it does, this is one of the burrower creatures, similarly to the Ankeg. Uh, this one is a lot more mobile, and we'll find that, generally speaking, the Bolette can be said to be the berserker version of the Ankeg. So, like, where the Ankeg lies underground and springs surprise attacks. The bullet uses its crazy mobility to get around everything, to burrow under, and as we'll find, leap above many things in its environment to just dart straight at its prey. Making it kind of a neat encounter. I feel as though the real quick burrower encounter isn't very novel these days, but I think there are some ways to turn the bullet into a very memorable set-piece encounter, or at least a nice random encounter separate from the rest of your campaign. Somewhat similarly to the, somewhat similarly to the Bahir. How yeah. the Bahir was just like kind of a nice standalone random encounter monster that you can throw in to spice things up whenever you feel like it. Yeah, my kind of overall opinion of the bullet before I actually go in, went into it is kind of like, oh yeah, it's just kind of a big monster that looks like it could fit into an encounter. Nope, it doesn't look like it can do that. Well... <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Like, every yeah. every time I've seen it, it's alone, and the fight doesn't seem interesting, but maybe I looked at it wrong. Yes, like, it, me too. I've only ever seen bullets used in these sort of random encounters by themselves, just burst up out of the ground on keg style, but I think there is a way to lean harder into what the bullet does to make a more interesting encounter, either a set-piece encounter or 
depending on the terrain you have, something that really sells what makes the bullet special. But mm. we'll get into that in the near future. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your thoughts because I, I want to like the bullet. Absolutely. So like a bullet, let's fire <laughs> off into this monster. Jesus Christ, edit this out. <laughs> Transition. <laughs> So, in terms of the artistic representation that we get of the Ballette in the 5th edition Monster Manual, we have here a pretty neat-looking monster, in my opinion. Yeah. So, supposedly, in the lore we'll talk about in a second, they're meant to be the cross between an armadillo and a snapping turtle, and I can kind of see it. Like, I, I can yeah. definitely, I definitely see the armadillo, you know, pretty obvious. So, but like, basically, shape-wise, it is kind of shaped like a bullet, appropriately, with four legs. It has this, it's very Pokemon, it has this very graceful, curving elegance to its design where, like, its entire head is this one entire piece of chitin that curves back with plates that continue along its body, kind of like an armadillo. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the whole jaw situation on this thing. Yeah, absolutely, it doesn't have teeth, it's just, like, the chitinous plates that it has point around its jaw in order to make the approximation of teeth. Yeah, and you can definitely see the snapping turtle bit, like, on the near the tip of the jaw, like the upper jaw. Yeah, yeah. Where it would come down, and basically, it looks like it would impale its own mouth. Yeah. Which kind of... It looks dangerous. It looks... Yeah, for sure. It looks both elegant and unwieldy, if you can imagine that sort of thing. It's it's really cool. I, th I So typically, we like to rip on the 5e art direction, but I do really admire the especially in Dungeons & Dragons, the strange design history that has just so happened to happen. So, like, because of D&D &D being so steeped in popular culture, like nerd culture at the time in the 70s, it's taken a lot of influences from kaiju stuff and from mythology and all these sorts of things. And then, in turn, like, through Final Fantasy and the popularity of Dungeons & Dragons, it's fed back into Japanese culture in a very strange way. So now it's become like we get creatures every now and again, like Bullets and Bahirs that have, due to this strange history of pop culture, feel at home in both a Bioware game and a Final Fantasy. And it's just really neat. I love this fusion of Eastern and Western monster design ideas. Yeah. Well, another thing I think the art does really cool with this one is um, I, it might just be... I'm reading into how they drew it, but I like that the hands, the claws, the middle claw is like a big spade claw. Yeah. To really emphasize like that it's a digging animal. Yeah, absolutely. It's morphology definitely suggests both the nature of the way it gets around through digging and also, you know, it's kind of aerodynamic, yeah. terra dynamic abilities yeah, like, I guess. like a lot of things a lot of things you'll see that have burrow speeds you kind of don't buy into it but yeah. this one the, i could totally see yeah this being like a fast burrowing bullet of a monster yeah it kind of has that yeah that bullet shaped mole kind of silhouette yeah it's very cool i yeah again i love the it's very like stylized it's very kind of surreal i love seeing that kind of shit in my monster design it's something i wish we got a little bit more of in D. &D. yeah yeah, pretty good stuff. So in terms of the lore that we get, the bullet doesn't necessarily have that much to it. I think what is missing most for me from the lore is that there isn't a whole lot of 
the neat considered details that I like hearing about in Monster Ecology. So, you know, there's nothing as cool in the Ballet stuff as the stuff that the Basilisks kind of get, where the Basilisks are slow and kind of shitty monsters because they don't need to work very hard to eat because they can just turn stuff into stone. There's nothing as yeah. cool as that in the Ballet stuff. There are a, little, a couple of little neat details, but there's no real application of the physiology or the habitat of the monster to create neat little details about it you know yeah i don't like that it's implied that they are magically created really i i they don't i don't think they are strangely monstrous enough in the realm of D D to be to deserve that like, yeah i don't know like yeah. they seem so natural yeah and it, it, so we specifically get in the lore that these guys are supposed to be the experimental result of some crazy wizard mixing armadillos and snapping turtles. I do mm. agree that it feels like the obvious choice, but I think it... <laughs> I kind of like it because it changed something in my head canon, so to speak, that mm, I I kind of enjoy. So I, I think it fits in with how the bullet acts in a way that I guess we can either talk about now or later, depending on your availability, mm. I guess. <laughs> Oh, I'm okay. Like, okay, what so is... all right, so let let me get some of the context in before I talk about it really quick. Okay. So okay. in terms of what we do get from the bullet, they are pretty much just murder machines, similarly to bugbears or goblinoids, somewhat. They're basically just hunger machines. They are supposedly fearless creatures that live only to feed and will attack pretty much anything, regardless of how powerful. It is or how outnumbered the bullet is, which is kind of boring lore, but it does adequately set the bullet up as a surprise encounter type of monster, right? This thing that will attack you pretty much wherever it finds you, no matter how stupid an idea it is, it does lend itself well for the kind of monster that will just jump out of nowhere and attack you whenever your campaign is getting a little dull, right? Whenever you need to spice yeah. up a, a travel montage, which like... I think works or at least is elegant in terms of that perspective. And truth be told, it is kind of effective. Again, I've never seen a bullet used as anything more than a surprise, suddenly a bullet attacks kind of encounter. Yeah, that makes sense. As mentioned, they use their aerodynamic, terradynamic kind of design and their large claws to quickly tunnel through the earth when they hunt. They sort of operate as juggernaut moles. They destroy everything in their path leaving big sinkholes behind them as they dart toward their next meal. As these burrower monsters often do, they have tremor sense and are alerted to vibrations in the ground around them. Yeah, it's a pretty big tremor sense, too. I don't remember what the... I believe it's out to 60 feet. I mean, I don't remember what the, um, Onkeg... Ah. Was it the Onkeg? What, yeah, it was what, the what Onkeg was the... that had the other tremor sense. In I that... think it was only 30 feet? It was either 30 one. or it was also 60, uh, if you want to double check real quick. Yeah, I'm slapping back. Slapping back. Okay, it was... Oh, I guess it was 60. I, for some reason, I remember it being shorter than that, but... Chill out on the beach. Slap back a corona. <laughs> so the book tells us that they don't tend to keep layers, instead maintaining a somewhat nomadic lifestyle where they can find a place abundant in things to eat. They eat everything they can find in that place, and then they move on when they can't find anything more to eat. Again, the idea here is that a bullet can pop up anywhere it wants, or rather anywhere you want a bullet to pop up, <laughs> and which, like, I'm kind of grateful for. It feels an awful lot like Wizard of the Coast was like, here's a monster. If you have no ideas, if the players happen to bypass the big important side quest, 
that you thought would fill up this entire session. Here's something to do to fill up time while you regroup and come up with something else to fill the session with. <laughs> you know what? I hadn't even considered that. Yeah. There's that little... <laughs> well, that to me reads as, like, strictly a cave monster, but it could be anywhere. Yeah, it can just show up wherever you need. <laughs> So, like, thanks, wizards. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that little blurb in the Dungeon Master's Guide that's like, when all else fails, just roll some dice, sigh heavily, and announce that Tiamat comes down from the sky and attacks. <laughs> yeah. This feels very much like, here's your plane, your, here's your walking around encounter when you got nothing else. There's been earthquakes going on in the city. Oh, a bullet's in the city. Absolutely, and we do get a little <laughs> obligatory... We do get a little obligatory adventure hook provision, as we always do. The book tells us that the bullets are known to attack villages, often terrorizing entire towns until the inhabitants have fled or the bullet is killed. Right, so Farmer Joe runs up to you and says, My, my corn exploded and a monster came out. <laughs> I grew a monster in my corn. Yeah, and there you go. There's your bullet encounter. So here we get into the weirder details the bullet is known for, strangely, the book is very express about this. The bullet is known for disliking the taste of dwarf and elf, although they often won't recognize that their prey is a dwarf or an elf until well into killing it and eating it. However, the book is also weirdly specific that bullets love the taste of halflings, going right out to say that the bullet is never happier than when chasing plump halflings across an open field. See, that that kind of detail does, I guess, in a way, smell of a mad wizard's creation, but like... Yeah, yeah. I Apparently, <laughs> like, this is a known thing about bullets. This is a detail that's been around since first edition. I'm imagining it's some vestige of, like, a long-lost joke between Gary Gygax and his group, you know, yeah. in the same way that, like, Mordenkainen is someone's character. I imagine, like, they had some weird ass, let's go to the Shire, and then Gary Gygax is like, I'm gonna kill all the, the hobbits, eat shit, Frodo. <laughs> I'm gonna swallow you with a monster, and that's just, like, a joke that has stuck around yeah, since then. Yeah, one of those deep lore jokes, like, Melf. Yeah, yeah. As another somewhat interesting detail, because Bolettes will eat anything that moves, a mating session between Bolettes will usually turn into, I have here, the hardest vorgasm of all time. Oh god, that's not the words I ever needed to hear. Yeah, sleep tight. Incidentally, the book does imply that there is a significant sexual dimorphism between male and female Bolettes, with lady female Bolettes being the bigger and stronger sex, that typically eat the males after they mate. All I can imagine is a a fucking, like, either a cartoon dust cloud of teeth and blood and bullet semen, or like a oh fucking God. Tasmanian devil-esque cyclone of the same materials. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's horrifying. Yeah, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> I never thought we would get Tasmanian devil full of bullet semen onto this show, but here we are. So, so that, moving pointedly along from that, the book also suggests that bullets are the result of magic experimentation, as we mentioned. Apparently, you know, the, the formula is snapping turtle, armadillo, and just a pinch of demon icor. <laughs> just a little. Why just not? Sure. It, it doesn't, again, like I said, I... I felt like it was the obvious choice, but I'm not bothered necessarily by it because I think it fits in later. So supposedly, bullets as a species will disappear for long periods of time. People will think that they've gone extinct only for them to reappear again sometime later. The book posits that this is because bullets keep secret nesting grounds 
So like nobody's ever seen a baby bullette. The book says that there are secret nesting grounds where the babies can be kept safe until they strike out on their own. That feels kind of weird and contradictory to me. So like if the bullets are so ravenous that they eat each other during sex, it doesn't feel right for them to also just keep nests of cute little, what I call bulletlets. Bulletlets. Yeah, it feels weird to me that they do that and it's totally fine. To my mind, I like the idea that this crazy wizard guy is still alive, like he's an elf or a lich or something, and that bullets really do go extinct every couple of generations, since all <laughs> they do is get into big fights where they die and eat each other. And so, like, this crazy lizard, lizard mage... Whenever the bullet population burns out, the wizard starts slapping together more turtles and armadillos and makes more bullets to send out into the world. Which, like, could also, to my mind, make for a fun adventure. Find the crazy Jeff Goldblum-style bullet wizard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that, that is, if there is to be a creation theory, that is the one I I like. Yeah. I had considered the, the secret nest thing to not be, like, a nest where they care for their babies. More like a how a sea turtle leaves its eggs to hatch on the beach and yeah. the, turtle, the turtle babies have to make their own way. No, 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 I wasn't imagining cute little nuclear families. I I guess I was more imagining, like, as soon as a bullet comes out of the egg or whatever. Are they... I think they're implied to be mammals. So, like, I'm I'm imagining, like, just little... Uh, it doesn't mention an egg system. I'm assuming know, if they're like... I... Well, I guess if they're supposed to be like turtles... Are they more turtle or more armadillo is really the question. Well, regardless, however they pop out, whether from an egg or a vagina, I imagine <laughs> them as tiny little land piranhas right from the get-go. So, uh... like, to my mind, bullets, like, only the strongest bulletlet survives, to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Which, hey, I mean, like, that could still work. I... Sure. I just imagine that, you know, because a bullet's life is so volatile, I like the idea that they actually do go extinct and there's just a crazy wizard that's continuously sending out bullets into the world. They're incapable of mating, not because they're infertile, but because they're just too goddamn aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. Which also kind of strikes me as kind of fun and flavorful and cute. <laughs> they're like land beta fish. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, beyond that, the bullet lore is fine. It does the job, not much beyond that, uh, aside from the little fun extrapolations that I personally made. Uh, there, There isn't too much to bullet lore, which is, I guess, fine. It does the job, right? A bullet is generally just supposed to be a surprise encounter. The lore sets it up to be a surprise encounter. They don't shoot for anything more than that, and so it is serviceable lore. Yeah, and it's like, it's not, it doesn't need a whole lot of backstory because it's just such a straightforward thing. Like, it's just a monster. Yeah. Like, they, honestly, they gave more backstory for it than I thought they even would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe they wanted to do it some extra justice because it's been around forever. I'm sure there were a bunch of nerds that were like, man, where's, where's my bullet lore? Like... They're the Bullet they Fan just, Club. They could have just azered it and been like, it's a turtle that digs good. Like, that could have been it. I, sorry. I just got an, uh, a propaganda poster in my mind <laughs> that's like a really wimpy looking onkeg with the text, imagine waiting around for your prey. <laughs> this poster brought to you by the Bullet Boys. The Bullet Boys. Anyway. <laughs> 
In terms of the Ballet's mechanical composition, Ballets are built around this, again, fairly common in video games, I feel, this very, fairly common gimmick of high mobility and then the ability to use that mobility to do some extra debuffs. So in in D&D terms, that often results in being able to knock something prone. So there are a bunch of animals or animal-like creatures that rely on this sort of strategy. Bulls, for example, and uh, like panthers and all of those sort of things. There are a bunch of high mobile animals that get an ability called charge that lets them knock over a creature if they run a certain number of feet at them. The ballet, to my mind, acts as a logical conclusion to that sort of design philosophy, where ballets are super mobile and have abilities that let them really bowl over a set of targets using that mobility. <laughs> so they get a supercharged pounce or a supercharged yeah. charge. As awkward as that is to say. I was actually thinking I I probably would have kept like charge as a move on it just because like well, it gets, a deadly leap, I guess, is just better. Yeah, it gets yeah. a straight upgrade to charge, more or less. Charge there there's a little so yeah. Well we'll talk about it in like one yeah, second. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get there, yeah. Yeah. It's not exactly the same, but the special thing that Ballets do is more or less a straight upgrade to charge. So the Ballet is a large, capital L, monstrosity, capital M. It's unaligned because it's not self-aware enough for alignment. It has a challenge rating of 5, a crazy high AC of 17, somewhat appropriately so, and a proportionately low HP of 94. Here's the thing, uh, to those of you who care about this, let me know if you want me to start including the HP formula. I literally don't know anybody who goes out of their way to roll monster HP, but if you so choose, I can start including the hit dice formula. Uh, generally, I don't because I don't know anybody who rolls it, but... Yeah, it's also, it's kind of unnecessary to include because, it, as we discussed, I think, in like a previous monster, it rarely ever makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it is just kind of... They arbitrarily pick some dice that gets them to the HP they want. Yeah, yeah, that is largely true, yeah. But if if you so choose, if you want some HP formulas, I can start yeah. including them. Yeah, let us know. I've started to be better about it, including the damage formula. And so I, I made that leap in my brain. Right. Anyway, they have a high walking speed of 40 and a pretty high burrow speed of 40 as well. We should mention that a creature's speed limit is as high as its fastest speed type they have, but they can freely switch between speeds. So in this case, as long as the bullet doesn't exceed 40 feet total... It can sort of dolphin its way in and out of the ground as much as it wants. Yeah. Uh, as kind of like a flashback reference to how fast this is, an Ankeg's burrow speed is only 10 feet. Absolutely. So as burrow speed goes, this is pretty fast. Yeah, even for like other natural monsters that can dig through stuff, this is crazy fast. Yeah, yeah. The idea, again, this is a super mobile monster. Yeah. It's... Stats, its attributes are pretty much what you would expect. It has a pretty high strength of 19, a pretty high constitution of 21, an average dex and average wisdom, and then a real low intelligence and charisma. Being always on the watch for more food, they have a pretty solid plus 6 to perception, leading to a pretty high passive perception of 16. And as always, they get dark vision. They also get tremor sense out to 60 feet, as burrower creatures often do. In terms of their traits, Ballets get a trait called Standing Leap, which boosts their horizontal jump out to 30 feet and its vertical leap out to 15 feet, with or without a running start. 
So this can afford the Bullet even greater mobility than its high speed already does, letting the Bullet leap over gaps or snag low-flying prey in its mouth as it wants to, and oh man, wouldn't that be <laughs> hilarious? Because this is a CR5 creature, the wizard just got fly, I imagine, like, <laughs> the real cocky asshole wizard that's like, I'm just gonna fly 15 feet off the ground, it can't get me, and then it just fucking jaws, like, <laughs> free willy, takes the entire wizard hole in its mouth. That's the fucking, from the new, the Jurassic World. Yeah, absolutely. Fucking, like, the giant water monster comes up and eats the pterodactyl. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And moreover, this leap speed directly ties into its signature move, which we'll get to in just a second. In terms of its actions, the bullet can take a bite out of its enemies with a pretty high plus seven to hit, dealing a slightly below average 30 piercing damage. That's 40, 12 plus four piercing damage. So fairly high range. Which seems like a lot, but I guess technically since they don't have multi-attack, it's not that much. No, it's totally, it's even, it's below their damage budget average. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it makes up for it with a little bit higher accuracy. Uh, but the bullet does kind of, it, it weirdly doesn't do that much damage in a round. Yeah, I was thinking about this uh, just a second ago when I was like, it, its challenge rating is five. How does the damage line up? And man, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do a lot more damage than a bugbear. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, there's four, two, two to four challenge ratings between them. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think the the threat is its mobility and then also this thing that I'll talk about right now. For sure. The other action it can take is much neater. It's called Deadly Leap. Basically what happens is if the bullet jumps at least 15 feet as part of its movement, which is, you know, boosted as part of that trait we mentioned, it can activate this action to land on its feet in a space that contains one or more other creatures, effectively like... You know, the bullet is the bowling ball and the characters are the pins. They just jump straight into them. All of the creatures that get landed on must make an above average 16 strength or deck save or get knocked prone and take 14 3d6 plus 4 bludgeoning damage and 14 same formula slashing damage. If the creature saves, they only take half damage. They aren't knocked prone and are instead pushed 5 feet out of the bullet space into an unoccupied space of their choice. Kind of interestingly, if there's not an unoccupied space in range, the creature just falls prone anyway, <laughs> which is a neat example of reinforcing the importance of positioning in your party that we don't often get in D&D. Yeah, because like if you're all surrounding one person and the bullet decides to hit that person. Yeah, if that person's trapped in a corner surrounded by other dudes, that person's just going to fall prone regardless. Yeah, one of the things I thought, so I had read this wrong. I guess the first time. Mm. Uh, for clarification, I guess how many spaces does a bullet take up? It's large, so that's four, right? Four, yes. Okay, so it could technically land on four people. Yes. I was trying. I was like, I was like, when will you ever land on one space that contains more than one creature, unless one of them is like a halfling or whatever race can occupy yeah, the yeah. same space as another thing? Yeah, yeah. If there's like a little halfling and then a Goliath friend or something, yeah, that that could happen. I guess, realistically, unless they're the frontliners, I'm not certain party members will group together in such a way that you could easily bowl over more than three of them at a time. But I guess depending yeah, yeah, on the yeah. environment, I it's feasible. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was just yeah, I was just trying to like figure out the kind of um the the logistics of how much damage it could do in a single turn using this deadly leap. Like what what's the the likely amount of damage? Well, you know, on average it will do 28 damage. Again, this is fairly low damage, right? So the bullet only has the choice of doing the below average damage bite attack or the below average damage deadly leap attack because the most you're going to get is 28 on average out of out of deadly leap. Yeah. I I I I think this is like pretty fair. So I have to confess I've spent a lot of these monsters being concerned I don't, I'm not really concerned about a bullet. I think it's pretty fair no. and pretty balanced. Yeah, I'm not concerned about a bullet at all. Yeah. I can't, the 17 armor class, I guess, because yeah. I'm used to people who like can't roll. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it, but I'm not bothered by it. I don't, yeah. I don't like it because I don't like high AC monsters personally, but I'm not like, I don't feel as though it's unfair. Yeah, and like, unless you're, since it doesn't have a multi attack, unless you are. It is in an, an encounter with more than one creature, the knocking prone does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, like, assuming you're just fighting one bullet, which is every bullet encounter I've ever found, yeah. the the prone will never, like, a bullet will never take advantage of the prone effect. It will yeah. always just be there to kind of, to my mind, keep the other creatures from being able to outmaneuver the bullet which they already probably can't do because the bullet is fast as fuck. A bullet seems like a pretty cool encounter for a third level party, <laughs> is what I'm yeah. kind of... Yeah, I think absolutely. A third level party could certainly take care of a bullet. A fifth level party could really, really take care of a bullet. This is, again, and it almost kind of feels like with the high AC and the high mobility, it also kind of feels like this is a, like a time sink monster almost. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to severely threaten anyone. It's just there to fill up, you know, an hour and a half of D&D &D combat so that you can get your brain together on a on a slow day. Yeah, I I'd been kind of thinking about this the last couple monsters that we talked about. Mm. The challenge rating system kind of pushes our mind into imagining these monsters as though they were the boss of an encounter, mm -hmm. which is kind of what it's designed to do, I guess. But the monsters in general, unless they are specifically given, like, a lot of gravitas in the book as a boss monster, most of them are literally just monsters to throw into an encounter with other stuff. Yeah. A lot of them are just designed to be, to cooperate with other monsters well. Yeah, to work synergized in a larger encounter. Yeah, like a lot of these monsters, it would be like if you had a bestiary in a Final Fantasy game, you wouldn't see any of these in the boss tab of the bestiary. They're just monsters. Yeah, they're there to help fill out a dungeon or, you know, the trip to a town that you need to get to. And obviously that that is totally true. That also, as it should be fairly obvious, is kind of outside the ability of us to do. You know, yeah. we can't obviously compare every monster with every other monster. That would take forever. So oh, yeah. <laughs> the best we can do, I think, in this show is just highlight what is special and important about the monsters that we do and posit encounter types that correspond well with these monsters. Yeah, I, I was mainly talking about like from personal kind of viewpoint because I think my problem is that I always do like, oh, this is the boss of an encounter and it needs to be hard. <laughs> no, no. But there's a lot of a lot of monsters aren't designed to be deadly. Yeah, 
And I think that's part of, again, I think you're right. I think that's part of how CR kind of falls down is because it doesn't necessarily give the the fledgling DM the ability to clearly distinguish what will be more challenging and what will be less challenging. Mm -hmm. I guess you can kind of, through context, like when... I mean, obviously, legendary actions, legendary resistances, if it's a legendary monster, that's probably a boss. Yeah, for sure. Beyond that, you just kind of decide through context. I think you read, you know, you read what's given to us in the lore or how the the monster manual flavors the creature. And if it makes it sound like a real badass, like a particularly comparable badass, yeah. then it then that is your boss monster. But I agree that that is a skill that is learned, and I don't think D&D would suffer from making it a little bit more clear what is, like, a higher caliber enemy within the same CR and what is not. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of it. Like, I wish there was, uh, like, uh, next to challenge, it's, like, challenge rating 5, and then in parentheses it just says, like, cannon fodder. Yeah, like... yeah, something like that. <laughs> All I can imagine is fucking monster anime high school where it's like you're merely a d-class cr5 <laughs> i am an s-class <laughs> and then he adjusts his glasses on his bullet nose <laughs> he gets a legendary action to adjust his glasses yeah so putting it all together let me throw a couple of encounter ideas at you firstly i do like the idea theoretically of a chase kind of arranged opposite of our bahir encounter so instead of the all the party chasing the Bahir. Maybe, you know, the party is acting as bodyguards to somebody they need to keep safe, and consequently they're just trying to outrun the Bullet as it's charging straight at them. I think that would be kind of a neat way, you know, because the party is throwing obstacles at the Bullet or trying to maneuver around walls or trees or whatever, and the Bullet is just jumping over or <laughs> diving under whatever they throw at it. So I think that could be a neat way to showcase the Bullet's mobility while simultaneously putting that fear of being chased by something that's very competent at being a predator in the hearts of the players. Yeah, I had never considered having a protection aspect to an encounter because that really does kind of motivate the players to not try to kill the thing if there is no reason to. No reason to, and also if it puts the thing they need to protect in severe danger. Yeah, yeah. Theoretically, that should be how it goes. In my personal experience, I found that generally players, even in escort scenarios, don't like to run from monsters. So this might only be for a really specific kind of group and a very specific kind of DM. Yeah, all else fails. You try it once. They turn around and try to fight the monster and the bullet just deadly leaps on top of the escort thing and kills it. <laughs> sure. If you want to be that guy, feel free to do that. I mean, like, hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If sure. you, if you, yeah, if you think that it's a valuable lesson for your group to learn, yeah, and that they won't care that much. Yeah, then <laughs> feel free by all means. Tough love it out. Uh, as <laughs> as we so often preach, be you know in tune with what your players want. Yeah, if it's somebody they're protecting and they're gonna be like, I am devastated and I quit. Yeah, then maybe don't do it. If it's the <laughs> fucking party mascot, don't do that. <laughs> But if it's, you know, Joe Farmer that they just yeah, need Joe to get Farmer from... Yeah, Joe Farmer they got a job from. Yeah, from village to village, then it's probably fine. Beyond that, you know, obviously the amount of earth in the battlefield will impact how dangerous the bullet is. 
I, on the other end of the spectrum, I also kind of love, and bear in mind, this would be, like, only for experienced, fairly well-equipped characters. I like the idea of having a bullet fight in the middle of a 15-foot high tunnel, or, like, in the middle of a chasm, where literally the entire fight, the bullet is just spending it, launching itself at the characters from every possible angle, and then diving back into the ground. Hell yes, that's, that's like, my idea for a worm fight. It, it feels like a Final Fantasy boss, just, like, <laughs> jump in, in and out, or, like, a fucking Kingdom Hearts, just, like, portal shoots out into another portal. Yeah, exactly. That sounds great. <laughs> so, you know, and I, uh, I want to throw in some some PSAs. As with the Onkeg for this kind of thing, I want to remind the listeners that I'm super about telegraphing as much of the monster as you can. So I would consider if doing that particular sort of encounter, giving the players some sense of where the bullet is going to pop out on any given turn. But beyond yeah, that... I wouldn't know how to do that. Well, it's kind of difficult because the bullet is so fast that it can dive in and out wherever it wants. Yeah. But, you know, if you want to maybe do it Pokemon style, where when the bullet digs into the ground, it shows, generally speaking, where it's about to pop out without actually going out and doing that, which, like, kind of fits into its action economy, right? So the idea is, like, the bullet pops out, doesn't attack, digs back in, digs itself into the position that it wants to be in next attack, and you as the DM kind of signal that as well. Right. It kind of fits, because the bullet can only attack once, so once it does its attack, you you just kind of, you do it into the breach style if you played that game, where you save the monster's action as more or less the last thing that happens, or like right, you, yeah. you give the, I'm not explaining this right, but you get the idea. I know what you mean, yeah, I have played into the breach, so I know what you mean. Telegraph as much as you can to give the players the best sense of what the monster is about to do. And I think you can do that with the way that the action economy works for the bullet. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yes. So, like, truth be told, you can also split the difference between the two, since generally speaking, I imagine a bullet is just going to be like a we're walking across the plains and a bullet attacks kind of monster. The bullet will be surrounded by plenty of ground. The bullet is, like, mechanically compartmentalized enough that it'll do well anywhere it can burrow. I think, you know... If you want to throw in, like, some gaps or some walls or something to help showcase the bullet's ability to jump over and around stuff just for the intimidation factor, I completely support that decision. But beyond that, I think a, a bullet is designed in such a way that you don't need to get crazy specific with its environment, as we see sometimes with monsters. Yeah. You know what does sound like a kind of fun encounter? that a bullet could be a part of without being totally alone. What? Like a monster hunter style, uh, you are, it's an encounter against like two on kegs and mm. then like partway through the encounter, a bullet shows up and starts fighting you and the on kegs. Yeah, that would be a fun, like, you know, revenge of the burrowers kind of encounter. Yeah, it's like you wait for an on keg to grab somebody and while it's like holding somebody in its mouth or whatever, a, a bullet just drops in on you and the Ankeg. Yeah, Critical Role taught us that a bullet can go wherever you want. So, like, it's true. <laughs> I'm fighting the Lich Boss at the end of our campaign. <laughs> bullet time, baby. Can you fucking imagine? It's just like it does kind of feel like a safety monster too. Like, oh shit, the boss is doing way worse than I thought it would. What can I do? <laughs> bullet time. Oh god. 
<laughs> it's Vecna and his army of undead bullets. Yeah, but your entire <laughs> team is like paladins. So like, <laughs> oh fuck, Vecna's not doing so hot and it's only round three. What am I going to do? 10 bullets go. Bullet time. <laughs> Shoot some bullets. This message brought to you by the Bullet Boys. <laughs> so yes, on the whole, I think it is a good standard monster. There's nothing incredibly special about it. There's nothing that makes me fawn over the bullet. But I think, you know, it's very, it's very fair. It's very tightly designed. All of the lore is to a point, which is to make the bullet the perfect random surprise monster. So I can't see too much to critique about the bullet. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's, <laughs> I've said this about a couple other monsters. It's very unoffensive. Yeah. It's super... <laughs> streamlined just like the bullet itself absolutely absolutely i will maybe even go as far to say that this is the least concerning least offensive monster we've had barring the banshee because i can understand i can imagine the kind of dm that's like oh fuck the banshee just drops things to zero hp that's scary yeah regardless of how the banshee is designed around it i think that the bullet is the least concerning monster maybe that we've had so far yeah I think so. I don't know. Fucking get me out of here before I say more words. <laughs> get out of here, Orion. You know what else is by no means offensive? What's that? Subscribing to Nerdsmith. Oh yeah. What uh what 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 show should they, you know, once they've done their binge watch of Tooth and Nail, what do you suggest they they move on to this on this fine day? Well, as we tend to always say, there's always Dear DM for similar content to ours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Joe's a sweetheart. Uh, if you're looking for any actual play kind of shows or podcasts, there's always Plot Hunters, mm -hmm. which is, I believe, a it's more of a stream than it is a podcast. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, what was the other one? The Germany one. What was the? In vain. In vain. In vain. Yeah. yeah. I have been really wanting to get into In vain because. Yeah. There's just something real special about 80s Germany that I kind of want to... Yeah, so if you're getting a little sick of D&D &D and the power fantasy stuff, try you on some Vampire the Masquerade semi-power fantasy stuff. Yeah, in yeah. a totally different setting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, creature comfort for today. Make sure, you know, get you some cocoa. Use your hollowed-out bullet chitin shell as a mug <laughs> holy shit that's a lot of cocoa you're gonna need a that's lot of a cocoa, cocoa. <laughs> and then uh, i don't know all the imagery of loose earth maybe do some gardening today i feel like that's good for your soul yeah go dig up some holes and put some plants in them yeah plant you a, a sunflower put you a ficus in the ground <laughs> get ficus yeah go ficus yourself <laughs> have a good day <laughs> bye